1904, in a working-class neighborhood on the outskirts of East London, a boy arrived at the police station. He was there with a note, which he dutifully had not read, and had been instructed to hand it to the first policeman he saw there. After he had done so, the policeman took a look at the note and locked him in a cell for about ten minutes, saying, This is what we do to naughty boys. Alfred Hitchcock spoke about that experience for his entire life, saying that it left him with a lifelong phobia of law enforcement or anything to do with the police. He even refused to drive a car because he was so afraid of getting a parking ticket. This is Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. On this episode, we'll be talking about Alfred Hitchcock and his family plot. Even though people, of course, do, it's impossible to really talk about Hitchcock's work at any stage in his career without bringing in Alma Revel. She was born in 1899, the same year as Hitchcock, and started at an entry-level job at Twickenham Film Studio in London at the age of just 16 as a tea girl, which was a job title, and she quickly worked her way up to the cutting room. Editing was, at the time, not seen as particularly specialized work, and it often went hand-in-hand with continuity, as it did for Alma. So, in her teens, she was editing films as well as reviewing scripts and shots to ensure that there were no glaring issues that would be a problem when cutting the film together. This was a looser time in film, and there were a lot more women involved in the early days of cinema than most people realize. Alma even had a starring film role, her only one, in the film The Life Story of David Lloyd George in 1918, which was thought lost until 1994. It was never released at the time, Uh, presumably because of politics, which is too bad. Alma seemed to be interested in an acting career at this time. It's on YouTube if you want to see an early film pioneer in a very rare screen role. When the studio closed in 1919, she got a job at Famous Players Lasky, which was subsidiary of an American company based in Islington. So from that, she got a taste of both British and American filmmaking styles. Alfred joined the company around the same time, having come from working at a department store writing ad copy and designing graphics. His first job was designing title cards. Those are the cards in silent films that narrate the action or provide dialogue. Sometimes they're just simple text, but um, often they're much more elaborately designed. That's what Alfred was quite good at. So in 1923, she was working as editor and script girl on Woman to Woman, which is currently considered a missing film, And it's on the British Film Institute's list of 75 most wanted lost films, partly because of Alma's involvement. A majority of silent films haven't survived to the present, owing to different mindsets about the disposability of movies as art, as well as the highly, 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 dangerously flammable nitrate film stock that was used at the time. But things do still occasionally turn up, and it's not uncommon to hear in the news about a long-thought lost silent film turning up somewhere, or at least pieces of silent films that were thought gone forever. So, you know, there's always hope. Alfred had, by that point, become sort of a jack-of-all-trades at the studio and was helping to design the set, write, produce, and co-direct that woman-to-woman movie. Having worked closely on the movie, the two got engaged shortly thereafter. In 1925, Alfred was assigned to direct The Pleasure Garden, which was the first film to have his name right up near the top, with fiancé Alma as assistant director and editor. It didn't make money, but 
the producers liked the movie's style, so he was given a second movie, The Mountain Eagle, which was also a flop and is now lost, which uh, Hitchcock, when he spoke about it later in life, seemed pretty happy about it. The two were married in 1926, and a year later they collaborated on the boxing movie The Ring, with Alma as uncredited co-writer, and it was a big success with the critics, but still didn't make a ton of money at the box office. Later that same year, though, came Hitchcock's first out-and-out triumph. It's a thriller about the hunt for a serial killer called The Lodger, with a, a huge British star at the time, Ivor Novello, in the lead. The studio hated it initially, thinking it sort of overly stylistic and, um, you know, maybe a little too artsy. But they overcame their objections when it became a huge hit. Alma was working at this point on any number of films in and around the same time, and while she has no defined behind-the-scenes role on The Lodger, she does have a small role as a wireless operator, so you can actually see Alma in Alfred's first big hit. The two continued to collaborate into the sound era, with Hitch directing classics like The Man Who Knew Too Much, The 39 Steps, uh, Sabotage, which offered their daughter Pat Hitchcock her first on-screen role, as well as The Lady Vanishes. These were often done a long time, Hitch's longtime assistant, Joan Harrison, another important woman in the career of Alfred Hitchcock. Having reached what was felt to be the peak of success in Britain, Alfred and Alma received numerous offers from Hollywood, eventually signing a four-film contract with legendary producer David O. Selznick in 1939. The result was Rebecca, a modern gothic romance with incidentally very queer overtones from the Daphne du Maurier novel. It was a hit and became one of Hitchcock's most awarded films, even if he found the collaboration with Selznick a little stifling. The film's box office success helped Hitch to coax back the creative control that he'd had in England. Alma during these years became more of a full-time collaborator on her husband's films, though only occasionally gaining screen credit. There's no real evidence that she was in any way unhappy with this arrangement, contented to let her more avuncular and in every way larger husband be the frontman for their partnership. But that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't take some considerable time to appreciate her contributions to cinema. Critic Charles Champlin summed it up when he said of her, The Hitchcock touch had four hands and two were Alma's. The 40s saw a string of classics, movies like Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, and Notorious. Notorious, by the way, also introduced one of his best MacGuffins. What's a MacGuffin, you ask? Well, a MacGuffin is a tool used to hunt lions in the Scottish Highlands. But there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands, you might be thinking. Well then, that's no MacGuffin. That's how Hitch explained it anyway. In storytelling terms, and there's a lesson here that writers and filmmakers would do well to learn, a MacGuffin is something that the characters in the story care deeply about, but that audiences really don't, and that a director shouldn't spend too much time on. The heart of Notorious is the sexual tension between two spies, played by Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, on opposite sides of the Cold War. Their plots and counterplots center around a hunt for uranium ore, but in Hitchcock's mind, it could have been anything. It's beside the point. A mistake that an awful lot of movies make is in trying to convince you to care about the uranium and not the dangerously horny chemistry between the leads. And that particular MacGuffin almost got him in trouble with the law. Hitch claims that the FBI began investigating him because of the use of uranium as a plot device, something which 
again, the FBI cared about, but he scrupulously did not. That was all, leading into an even more prosperous 50s that saw Alfred and Alma going from strength to strength with strangers on a train, rear window, to catch a thief. Even a glossy and very successful remake of one of his earlier British films, The Man Who Knew Too Much, this time with James Stewart and Doris Day, whose K Sera Sera won an Oscar for Best Original Song. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? In 1955, the anthology series Alfred Hitchcock Presents debuted on CBS with a pilot episode directed by Hitch himself. Already having become something of a famous face and having been doing his famous cameos for a while, his introductions to the show made him as famous as any of his stars. The first real celebrity director. That show would run for 10 seasons and 361 episodes, not including a four-season reboot in the 1980s. The latter part of the decade of the 1950s, though, was a more complicated time for Hitch and Alma. Movies were changing, and it was unclear if the director would be able to keep his finger on the pop culture pulse as he'd so ably done in the past. Hitchcock unsuccessfully tried to buy the rights to the 1954 French novel She Who Was No More from the writing team of Pierre Boulot and Pierre Arod. That book became the basis for Henri-Georges Clouseau's groundbreaking 1955 psychological thriller Les Diaboliques. Hitchcock was either inspired by or envious of the success of that movie, and became determined not to miss out again, acquiring their next novel, The Living and the Dead. Vertigo, the movie, not the medical condition, was the result. Though now it's considered one of the director's finest films, if not one of the best movies ever made, it frequently makes those kinds of kinds of lists, his dreamy psychosexual thriller landed with an absolute thud on its release in May of 1958. Starring James Stewart and Kim Novak with a memorable supporting turn from Barbara Bel Geddes, Vertigo involves Scotty Ferguson, a retired police detective, suffering from Vertigo naturally, who takes a job trailing Madeline Ulster, the wife of an old friend. She's been behaving strangely, seemingly either possessed by the tragic spirit of her own great-grandmother, or at least believing herself to be. When he stops her from diving into San Francisco Bay, the two develop an attraction that's cut short when he's unable to stop her from apparently leaping from the bell tower at Mission San Juan Batista. At this point, the movie more or less starts over, with a deeply depressed Scotty having become obsessed with Madeline, an obsession that's naturally exacerbated when he stumbles across Judy Barton, a virtual double for Madeline, also played by Kim Novak, who Scotty proceeds to try to mold into a more perfect copy of the woman he sees as his lost love. Critics thought it too long, too slow, and too confusing? John McCartan of The New Yorker said that Hitchcock has never before indulged in such far-fetched nonsense. It broke even at the box office, but that was a pretty low bar for a typical Hitchcock picture. Whereas he might have seemed in the greatest danger of falling behind the times, with Vertigo he might have been too far ahead. Jimmy Stewart is one of Golden Age Hollywood's most consistently likable leading men, but his character here is sad, almost pathetic, and his obsession with Judy gets downright ugly. The casting feels like a really smart, interesting choice that audiences at the time just didn't seem to care for. 
Of course, the French loved it, with filmmaker Francois Truffaut writing of it in the film journal Cahier de Cinéma. Ideas and forms follow the same road, and it is because the form is pure, beautiful, rigorous, astonishingly rich and free that we can say that Hitchcock's films, with vertigo at their head, are about ideas in the noble, platonic sense of the word. It's also a movie about a man who develops a deeply unhealthy obsession with an icy blonde, the kind of woman long considered Hitchcock's type. If the movie didn't feel biographical upon release, it would come to seem more so later on. But Vertigo's failure wasn't the worst news for Alfred and Alma that year. Just a month before the film's release, Alma was diagnosed with cervical cancer during a checkup for what they both thought was something minor, and she was scheduled for surgery to proceed just the following day. The surgery went well, but Hitchcock was a bundle of nerves during and after. He had a meal at a restaurant during the procedure and then refused to go near the place ever again during his life. He was genuinely shaken by the possibility of Alma's loss, something he might not have ever considered seriously before. During her recovery, his anxiety over her health became so exhausting to Alma that she convinced him to move on with the production of the movie that he'd been working on before she was diagnosed. A little thing you might have heard of, called North by Northwest. There are anecdotes a little like that throughout the life of the Hitchcocks, and even though we're going to get into more disturbing territory before much longer, it never doesn't feel as though their relationship was sincere and deep, if not always passionate. So back to North by Northwest. That smart and cheeky spy thriller starring Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint was both a commercial and critical hit, both at the time and into the present day. It's tempting to think that it was an intentional correction after the more conspicuously artsy Vertigo, but this was already in production when that came out. So it's not that the director had ever gone away, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was going strong and winning awards all along. So Vertigo was hardly a sign of any serious decline, but North by Northwest blends spy action with a sassy, bold sense of humor in ways that make it feel very specifically Hitchcock. It's seen as one of his definitive movies, uh, one of the ones that sort of has a little bit of everything that you might want in a Hitchcock movie. And even with the movie's very deliberately broad appeal, he takes time out to thumb his nose at the censors by including a very queer-coded villain in Martin Landau's Henchman who's a companion to James Mason's leading bad guy. And then there's that famous bit at the end where Grant and Saint settle down into their berth as we cut to the train entering a tunnel. Wink, wink. It was with his next movie, though, that Hitch would make the biggest swerve of his career. He would be entering his 60s at this point and would change cinema forever again. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Still moved and challenged by the existence of boundary-pushing movies like Diabolique, and always on the lookout for new material to adapt, 
Hitchcock was given a copy of Robert Block's 1959 bestseller, Psycho, by his longtime assistant Peggy Robertson. It's a sweet story of Norman Bates and his mother running an old hotel and was loosely based on the life of notorious suspected serial killer Ed Gein, who'd been arrested two years before the novel came out. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. On Gein's property were found any number of human remains, including disinterred bodies, and at least two women that he'd killed. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. Without going into unnecessary detail here, items on Gein's property included a waste can made of human skin and a belt made from nipples. So, you know, don't hang out with that guy. The book, with all that in mind, reads as fairly tame, at least compared to the real story. Hitchcock bought the rights immediately, and legend has it that he asked Robertson to buy up every copy she could, figuring that the fewer people who knew the story and its twists, the better. Hitch had a couple of projects that had fallen through, and he was really keen on this one. But Paramount balked, finding it sort of all sort of distasteful and cheap. He offered to film it, at a discount, using his Alfred Hitchcock Presents television crew, the studio still said no, just finding it tasteless. Finally, he offered to finance the film himself, film it at Universal Studios, not Paramount, and give up his director's fee in favor of a 60% stake in the film negative. So finally, Paramount gave in. It's not much of a spoiler at this point to say that these were all very smart creative and business decisions on Hitch's part. The movie was a smash, and though released nearly 40 years into a singularly successful film career, it remains probably the first movie people think of when his name comes up. Imagine a world in which Hitchcock had retired after North by Northwest. He'd still be remembered as one of the most commercially and artistically important directors in cinema history. But then he made Psycho! burnishing his own legacy and making clear that he could be every bit as groundbreaking and modern as the up-and-coming generations of filmmakers. By stripping away all of his glossy, golden-age Hollywood trappings, the director had once again shown the way to the future. The production code that had constrained sex and violence in movies and that had demanded a very specific and conservative form of morality was breaking down by this point. Psycho included unmarried people in bed together, a cross-dressing lead character, a nearly nude shower scene, and, oh my gosh, you guys, a flushing toilet. (laughs) Which was probably the most shocking thing of all. Having a toilet, having a toilet flush, this was not, this was not done. The bathroom. So, rather than being stuck in the past, Hitch was ready to leap into the future. Psycho, however, would be Hitchcock's last unabashedly successful project, and the last, according to friend and fellow filmmaker Francois Truffaut, with which the director would be entirely satisfied. 
and Hitch's slow decline from a nearly unassailable perch can at least partially be laid at the feet of his own appetites. A 1960 news story about a thousand birds descending down a family's chimney in La Jolla, California, reminded the director of a Daphne du Maurier short story he'd read earlier, The Birds. He'd previously adapted du Maurier's novels as Jamaica Inn and Rebecca, but this wasn't immediately on his agenda, and he figured it'd be tough to make a movie about a short story about birds gone wild. He was looking forward to filming Winston Graham's novel Marnie and set out finding a lead, but yet another news story about another bird invasion, this time in Santa Cruz, spurred him along and made him think maybe the birds was the way to go. One morning while watching the Today Show, Alma and Hitch spotted a blonde model during an ad for a diet drink. Feel better. Feel younger. Have the figure you See the go with Seagull. With Seagull. Seagull from Pet Milk Company. By that afternoon, a certain Tippy Hedren had an appointment to meet with studio executives. She wasn't sure for what. She was asked back the next day, a Friday, and left a file of photos and a reel of her appearances and commercials. She still didn't really know what it was all about. Hitch and Alma reviewed it all over the weekend. And Tippy Hedren was called back again on Monday. By that Tuesday, she was offered an exclusive seven-year contract with Hitchcock, which was for her the first time his name had even come up in the process. She had no idea she was auditioning for Alfred Hitchcock. The terms were pretty modest. She'd actually be taking a pay cut over her commercial work, but it was steady, and the guaranteed income was appealing. So she ultimately took the deal, despite having had no real movie star ambitions. Her first actual meeting with the director was very casual, and having traveled a fair bit herself, she was able to engage with him in discussions about restaurants and world destinations and stuff like that. She was stylish, sophisticated, and had a lot of self-control, not to mention blonde, uh, which were all qualities that Hitchcock appreciated in any number of his earlier leading ladies. I suppose I didn't feel I was being tested or examined by him, because I never thought I would be working for him. I had heard that he and Evan Hunter were working on a script, but it never occurred to me that I would have anything to do with it. I imagined that he wanted people like me, models, without acting experience, for the television show. That was before she was shuffled off to meet with legendary Hollywood costume designer Edith Head, who designed an entire wardrobe for Hedron's screen tests, but who was also tasked with designing a personal wardrobe for Hedron. That part I found surprising. He spent as much money on an outright gift of a personal wardrobe as he did on my year's salary. Certainly in retrospect, but probably at the time as well, this was a deeply troubling moment, and it was the beginning of a controlling obsession that would mark the darkest scenes in Alfred's life and career, and probably in Hedron's as well. It was very clear, wasn't it? He was doing Vertigo with Tippy Hedren. That was a comment from Samuel Taylor, Vertigo's screenwriter. So he'd know. She went through a three-day screen test, and later, at a lunch with Alma Hitch and Agent Lou Wasserman, she was presented with a gold pin depicting three birds in flight. 
at which time she was asked to star in the upcoming film The Birds. I was so stunned. It never occurred to me that I would be given a leading role in a major motion picture. I had great big tears in my eyes. With The Birds to be her first big screen role, Hitchcock took her under his wing, no pun intended. At first, she was grateful, feeling as though she were getting a masterclass in screen performance, and Hitchcock was publicly effusive about her work. But his guidance began to spread beyond the professional. Aside from a degree of attention to her work that she and, and, and the rest of the cast of the, and crew as well, I mean, lots of other people were noticing what was going on, everyone began to find troubling. He was dictating what she should do and where, not just on stage, but in her personal life as well. And as this was going on, she began to feel that a very clear message was being sent. That message being, I made you, I can break you, do as you're told. He could be two different men. He was a meticulous and sensitive director who gave so much to each scene and who got so much emotion into it. And he was a man who would do anything to get a reaction from me. This all culminated, for the birds anyway, in what Hedron has referred to as the worst week of her life. During the film's climax, her character is trapped in a small closet as birds attack her. Mechanical birds were planned for the shoot, but it was decided that live animals would be more convincing. For Melanie Daniels, the character, this lasts a few minutes, but... But Hedrin was in that closet getting pelted with live birds for an entire week's worth of filming. At one point, birds were actually tied to her body because they were flying away too quickly. She was scratched up. She almost had an injury to an eye. It was a lot. And Hitchcock seemed sheepish about the whole thing, but he never called it off. Hedron did and does love animals, by the way, and liked working with the birds in the film, uh, to a point. Ultimately, the film was a modest box office success. It didn't make as much as Psycho, and it cost a whole lot more, but audiences liked it well enough for its bird-related thrills. Critics didn't really get it, even the ones that liked it, seeing it as a highly polished but sort of silly horror movie. Tibby Hedron came in for much-deserved praise, though, convincingly playing the film's strongest character and carrying it for much of its runtime. Time has been kind as well. It's one of my favorite Hitchcock films, and it's got a layer of Hollywood gloss that sort of obscures its broadly apocalyptic themes. The apocalypse here, though, isn't as much about the birds as it is about the ways in which characters in the movie treat each other, with the bird attacks always sort of mirroring what's going on in Melanie's life. The end of the world here isn't environmental or biblical, but personal. It's also got this great, wonderfully ambiguous ending, and it's one of Hitchcock's best. Next up for Hitchcock was a project he'd had in the back of his mind for a while, a psychosexual thriller based on the novel Marnie by Winston Graham. I'm Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my latest motion picture, Marnie, which will be coming to this theater soon. 
Mani is a very difficult picture to classify. It is not psycho, nor do we have a horde of birds flapping about and pecking at people willy-nilly. We do have two very interesting human specimens, a man and a woman. One might call Marnie a sex mystery, that is, if one used such words. Despite Hitch's increasingly creepy behavior, Tippy was coaxed back into a leading role. The resulting movie, co-starring Sean Connery, is deeply complicated, and it's a it's a really dark thriller that it would take more time than we have here to unpack. It includes a heavily implied rape scene while also offering up a superb central performance from Hedron. The movie is far darker than even Psycho before it, and while audiences didn't bite at the time, it's come to be seen by many as a masterpiece of a deeply problematic one. Perhaps the best way to tell you about the picture is to show you a few scenes. This is Mark coming down the stairs of his family home outside Philadelphia. He is a thoughtful man, dark and brooding. He is, in a sense, a hunter. And this is what he is hunting, Marnie. Richard Brody of The New Yorker wrote in 2016 that Hedron's performance is one of the greatest in the history of cinema. And she's justifiably proud of it herself. But far more troubling than anything on screen was what was going on behind the scenes. Hitchcock's behavior was getting increasingly obsessive, controlling, and just downright sinister. He became explicit in making sexual demands, to which she never acquiesced. Hedron has spoken about all of this in interviews and in her own autobiography. And the details of this prolonged sexual harassment, which was also witnessed by many on and around the set, are they're just impossible to minimize. It all led to an outright assault during which the director attempted forcibly to kiss her. Uh, she refused to ever work with him again after this point, and good for her, but perhaps thinking that she'd reconsider, it took two years before he'd release her from her contract. It marked the end of the most troubling period in Hitchcock's biography, and it colors everything that came before and after. His behavior, again, which there's a lot more detail to than we're going to spend time with here, but I'd certainly encourage anyone to take a look at Hedron's autobiography or interview she's given on this topic. But his behavior was ugly and cruel and pathetic as well. And while it's hard to say how much these things are related, his career never really recovered. His next film, Torn Curtain, with Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, feels like a step back into a more comfortable genre of filmmaking. It's fine, it's perfectly watchable and even engaging, but it feels a little tired. Same thing with Topaz, a movie that's a bit of a step up, but never really gels as anything memorable outside of a few scenes. It was also one of the biggest box office flops of his career. What came next was one of Hitchcock's most nihilistic films, but one with a sense of humor, if a very dark one, and one he had a pretty good time making. I dare say you are wondering why I am floating around London like this. I am on the famous Thames River, investigating a murder. Rivers can be very sinister places, and in my new film, Frenzy, this river, you may say, was the scene of a very horrible murder. 
Frenzy involves a former Royal Air Force pilot who's framed by an acquaintance for a series of brutal serial murders. So it's got murder detectives and a wrong man. These were all classic Hitchcock's themes, but they're presented here in a very post-Haze Code world. It also takes us back to Psycho and its interest in tricking us into identifying with the killer now and again. The movie is far more explicit in its violence and far less subtle than earlier films, but feels sort of modern for it. It's gritty and sometimes distasteful in ways that Hitchcock's earlier films rarely were, except under the surface. But it was also received as a return to form. It got mostly good or great reviews and did decent box office. If it's not remembered as among his triumphs, it's certainly a sharp and grisly crime drama that plays well alongside the early Italian Giallo movies that were soon to have a boom in popularity. It also marked a return to England for filming for the first time in decades, which Hitch and Alma seem to have enjoyed immensely. So finally, after all that, we come to 1976's Family Plot. Buoyed by the success of Frenzy, Hitchcock's mood seems to have lightened. Indeed, the, the book on which the movie was based, Victor Canning's The Rainbird Pattern, was very dark indeed, but Hitch convinced screenwriter Ernest Lehman, with whom he'd collaborated on North by Northwest, that he was only interested in the bare bones of the book. Hitchcock was in a mood to do something light, and he kept steering Lehman away from anything too heavy, even though one of the main character's backstories does have him murdering both of his parents. Find him, and I'll pay you $10,000. That's Madame Blanche, a medium. Being a master spiritualist myself, I can assure you that Madame Blanche is a fake. What do we have to do for the money? Find one man. What's his name? Nobody knows. Where is he? Nobody knows. But let us go on. The plot involves two couples, a fake psychic and her boyfriend, as well as a jeweler and his girlfriend who make money on the side by kidnapping dignitaries and extorting extravagant ransoms. Blanche, the pretend psychic, played hilariously by Barbara Harris, is approached by the elderly Julia Rainbird, who wants her to use her so-called abilities to track down the child that her dead sister had given up for adoption, for which she'll pay Blanche $10,000. Blanche and her boyfriend George, played here by Bruce Dern, who was already sort of a Hitchcock veteran at this point, having appeared in an earlier movie as well as several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the two figure that they'll track down the lost Rainbird heir, even without actual occult powers, what does it matter? Meanwhile, we meet Karen Black's Fran, very memorably dressed all in black, and her boyfriend, played by William Devane, who we in the audience discover is in fact the missing heir. And he's no good. The two of them together, uh, they're kidnappers, extortionists, and Devane's character unashamedly talks about having had his adoptive parents killed at a young age. The plot very gradually brings the two couples together, but mostly through comedic contrivances. Blanche and George are pretty good-hearted as con artists go, and they're certainly not master detectives. There's a really great car chase in the movie that winds up being the f both the most exciting and the funniest part of the whole movie. Blanche? <laughs> Poor Madame Blanche. I've grown very fond of that girl. 
There's a geometry to the plot that Hitchcock must have appreciated. Four characters, two couples, whose plot lines slowly converge, but never really merge until the very final act. It was the kind of thing that appealed to Hitch, who enjoyed the preparation part of directing far more than the actual doing of it. The movie's clever title, uh, it was called Deceit until nearly the end of filming, refers to at least two plots involving families, but also to a literal family plot in a cemetery that offers George and Blanche a vital clue about the missing Rainbird heir. The actual filming seems to have been a positive experience for everyone, even Hitchcock, who'd uh, needed a pacemaker installed during pre-production and had definitely seen a decline in his physical capacities. But the production went smoothly. Alma showed up on the set regularly, as she'd always done. Though she'd come through her early cancer diagnosis fine, neither one of them was getting any younger. But the bitterness of frenzy seemed to have been replaced by a happier tone with this one. And like Frenzy, Family Plot did decent business and opened to good reviews. And as an ending, it's generally upbeat, it's sometimes goofy in the best ways, and it's got plenty of hints of the macabre and a couple of really fun action sequences. Charmingly fitting, perhaps, for the last film in Hitch's career, the movie's happy ending sees Blanche literally winking at the camera. It's a lot of fun, even if it's only viewed as sort of a frothy grace note on a long career. But he wasn't planning for this to be the end. He went right back to work following the movie's conclusion. He was working to develop a spy thriller called The Short Night, once again with Ernest Lehman and others. But it wasn't to be. Though he'd avoided major health setbacks, despite his, you know, not terribly health-conscious lifestyle... He had heart issues. He was suffering from arthritis. Just as importantly, Alma's health was in decline as well. She'd come through her cancer bout, but she suffered a series of strokes during these years and was just not at full capacity either. So in 1979, a couple years later, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the American Film Institute. In front of a ballroom full of people and a very visibly moved Alma... He said, I beg permission to mention by name only four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, and encouragement, and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor. The second is a scriptwriter. The third is the mother of my daughter, Pat. And the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen. And their names are Alma Reville. Had the beautiful Miss Reville not accepted a lifetime contract without options, as Mrs. Alfred Hitchcock some 53 years ago, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock might be in this room tonight, not at this table, but as one of the slower waiters on the floor. I share my award, as I have my life, with her. Though it wasn't made public until much later, he had turned down a CBE from Queen Elizabeth. That's the title of Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. Apparently because he felt like he deserved a better title. So in 1980, he got another shot when he accepted the higher rank of a formal knighthood, making him Sir Alfred Hitchcock. 
His health wouldn't allow him to travel to London for the ceremony, and so he was presented the papers in his office at Universal Studios. He died just four months later, at the age of 80. His reputation is one of the most significant and successful filmmakers of cinema's first century, more than secure. Alma died in 1982. Her last formal screen credit had been as co-writer of 1950's Stage Fright. But it's universally acknowledged that there's no Hitchcock film that wasn't a collaboration between Hitch and his partner, Alma Revel. Both of them pioneers of cinema. I talked a lot here about Tippi Hedren. So what was her swan song? I'm tempted to say that her story had a happy ending, despite everything she was put through by Hitchcock and other Hollywood men, but the fact is, her story isn't over yet. She's had dozens of film and television roles in her career, a legacy that continues through her daughter, Melanie Griffith, and her granddaughter, Dakota Johnson. In 1975, she was running a program for Vietnamese refugee women to help resettle them in the United States. When some of them admired her glamorous Hollywood nails... She got the idea to have her personal manicurist come to the refugee camp in Northern California to teach them how to do manicures. That led to some of the first manicuring licenses in the United States, and it was really the basis of what became a multi-billion dollar industry that's largely based around the work of Vietnamese and Vietnamese-American entrepreneurs. She released a memoir in 2016, and in 2017 she spoke out in support of the women who'd come forward about Harvey Weinstein's pattern of harassment and abuse. As I record this, she continues as president of the Rohr Foundation that she founded in 1983, running the Shambhala Wildlife Preserve for exotic felines, having rescued hundreds of big cats that had been illegally bred and sold in the U.S. No one can say that she came through the abuse she suffered from Alfred Hitchcock unscathed. But she's also more than those experiences. This has been Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. It was written, produced, and edited by me, Ross Johnson, and I also put together the incidental music. Heather Zykowski played Tippi Hedren, Michael Willick was Samuel Taylor, and Joseph Barsha was Charles Champlin, Richard Brody, Francois Truffaut, and a slightly Americanized but nonetheless spot-on Alfred Hitchcock. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing on your favorite podcasting app, for more information and sources, visit swansongspod.com or swansongspod on Instagram. For more information about Tippi Hedren's Roar Foundation, visit shambhala.org. Thank you so, so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Well, that was a bit of a snapper, wasn't it?